Father, would you open up our hearts, open up our minds, that we might behold you. We might deepen our love, our appreciation for the heritage on which we stand. With grateful hearts, we do not worship or venerate in any religious manner that overextends ourselves, and yet we are thankful, deeply grateful, that we fall in a long line of saints who have treasured these very truths of which we sing and pray and treasure together today. Glorify yourself as we grow together during this time around your word. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was in the fall of 2020, just about a year ago, evangelical Protestants were pretty shocked to learn that the editor-in-chief of the popular magazine Christianity Today, Mark Galley, was leaving the Protestant faith altogether for Roman Catholicism. Galley assured people that he had come to this decision after much careful thought and study. And he claimed to be disenchanted with Protestantism's triteness and general lack of depth, as well as his own longing to just be part of something more ancient, more historic, more unified, more reverential, more ritualistic, more global. And topping his reasons was the simple beauty of its liturgy, its worship. Galley, who once served as a Presbyterian minister for many years, converted to Anglicanism nearly 20 years before. And he now states, he says, I'm not rejecting evangelicalism per se. I'm simply taking my Anglicanism deeper and thicker. He goes on to write, he says, One thing I like about Roman Catholicism is that you have to do these things. Whether you like it or not, whether you're in the mood or not, sometimes whether you believe it or not, you just have to plow ahead. I want that. If it's left up to me, I'm just one lazy guy. I will not do anything unless someone comes along and says, you need to do this. This is really important. This will shape your life. Come on, Galley, Get off your tail and get to work. Now You noticed I edited a little of his saltier language there. That's the essence of what he conveyed. The appeal to Roman Catholic worship and the disgust of the triviality that he observed in much of evangelicalism's cheapness in worship was paramount in his decision to swim the Tiber, as some have referred to it, move to Rome. My own seminary graduation some years ago from a Reformed Protestant seminary several years back involved me graduating side by side next to a classmate, I suppose, that I'd never met before, but engaging in conversation, standing there, getting ready to go through the formality of it all. I asked him, well, what are your aspirations following graduation? What are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm really excited. I'm going to become a Roman Catholic priest. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, come now. How does that? I, I thought this was a Reformed Protestant seminary. How the whole existence of this institution is sort of as a counter to that. Help me understand what in, why would you do that? And he, he gave me a number of reasons, but in essence, it came down the beauty and ancient nature of the church's liturgy, its worship. 
returning to Rome, sweet Rome, as another Protestant-turned-Catholic author put it, centers a great deal on Rome's beauty and transcendent feel of the worship, combined with a sense of actually accomplishing something, doing something, earning something, tokens of merit with one's relationship with God. So it would seem Mark Galley's story, the story of my seminary classmate, and in the years since, many, many, many other stories very similar to these that I've come across reflect a trend away from the Protestant faith that needs a response. I don't intend to give the final word on that response. I don't intend to zero in on this exactly and only now. But as we've been learning in Hebrews in recent months, there have been and always will be departers from the gospel, many of whom appeared in every way to be genuine disciples of Christ. But in our narrow study this morning, I'd like to make the following argument, the main idea, and that is simply this. Our knowledge of and our appreciation for the Protestant Reformation ought to continue. It should continue, perhaps most especially in terms of the worship or the liturgy of Christ's church. That's our main focus this morning. And to what end or for what purpose are we seeking to examine this today? Well, simply that we might gladly exalt the triune God on His terms and in the manner that He alone makes possible through His Word. What a helpful summary in the call to worship that Pastor Miller already provided for us, setting the platform of this unique day. Many of us know this is Reformation Sunday. This significant mile marker in human history as well as church history took place on this day in 1517. As theologian R.C. Sproul put it, he said, One hammer in the hand of an obscure Augustinian monk changed the world forever. Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, calling his fellow professors to examine issues of supreme theological importance. And thus began the Reformation through which the light of God's Word was brought out of the darkness to shine with clarity once again. The Protestant Reformation was already underway, though. It did not begin with Luther. As a movement, as men such as John Wycliffe and Jan Hus and others, uh, but it was Luther that leveraged the advent of the printing press in a very strategic way to disseminate his teaching and ideas quickly throughout Germany and the rest of Europe. And at the heart of the Reformation for Luther was the gospel. What does it mean that the just shall live by faith? What does that mean? The Word of God was being restored to a place of prominence again against the competing authorities of church tradition, papal decrees, and such that were delineated by the Roman Catholic Church. Is the Christian life, it was asked, is it a vicious cycle of insecurity before God? always hoping to find oneself in a state of grace solid enough to hold oneself against hell, even purgatory. The Reformers declared our eternal hope is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the Scriptures alone, and ultimately for the glory of God alone. These solas, 
that we have just sung this morning are important, not only for reforming the church's doctrine, but its worship. So rediscovering the gospel and reforming the church's worship were two sides of the same coin for the reformers, each deserving fervent attention. So the scriptures cannot rightly be exalted if falsehood is woven into the fabric of a church's worship, right? God cannot be glorified if his gospel is obscured through the more and more layers of human ideas marketed as the commandments of God. These are incompatible. Now allow me to make just a few qualifications before we take any further steps forward together this morning. First, let me admit right out of the gates, this is a unique sermon, okay? It is topical. It is historical in focus. It's out of sync with our regular practice of preaching book-by-book expositional sermons. And I recognize this, and I'm preaching instead today due in part to the uniqueness of this day, Reformation Sunday, with the hope, though, that our love for Christ-centered word-saturated worship would grow deeper and stronger. Second, I recognize history is complicated. I have no interest in hagiography, as it's been called, that, that way of doing history that just glorifies the past, scrubbing it free of any impurities. So all we see is the glowing halos around those people that we love from church history. That's not a good way to do history or church history, and it's just not the reality of the world, is it? It's not the reality of your soul either. We are, like they were, sinner saints, catching a great many things but missing other things, sometimes with great consequences. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Cranmer, and the rest of them had significant shortcomings and ought not be venerated as if they were otherworldly characters. They had significant faults that ought to be critiqued. Third, I recognize Reformation history has an endless number of angles that could be examined and need to be nuanced, and I cannot do that in such a short time this morning. I'll be dealing in generalities, all right, so know that I'm not aware, unaware of of that dynamic, but I'm grateful for the significant pivot point in church history that the Reformation provides for us, particularly in terms of the church's worship. Fourth, our emphasis this morning concerns the church's worship. As I've said a number of times already, the church's liturgy. So many other significant changes were brought about by the Reformers, but they were not merely concerned with bringing about true doctrine, but also pure worship. As Jonathan Gibson and Mark Ernge write in their very helpful book, Reformation Worship, they say this, the liturgy of the church service was renovated and reinvigorated in such a way that the Reformation gospel shone brightly from the opening words to the closing benediction. Because God's glory was their ultimate concern, how God was worshipped became a major concern. Worship was to be regulated by the word, not by the whims and wishes of human imagination or innovation. The recovery of the gospel and the Reformation was ultimately a worship war, a war against the idols, a war for the pure worship of God. 
the Protestant Reformation waged a worship war that sought to return Christ and his word to their rightful place. Ensuring God's divine speech was the final arbiter of how Christ's church ought to be ordered and how the triune God was to be worshipped. So where the word evaporates in the midst of the congregation of God's people, man's ideas quickly find their place filling in the cracks. Whether that comes through a high liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church, which many chase for its aesthetic feel, its feeling of transcendence and worship, or a low liturgy of a contemporary church, which may chase an aesthetic feel of God's nearness and accessibility. What was at stake in the 16th century Protestant Reformation Europe concerning Christian worship is at stake in every era. And we must continually work to calibrate our understanding and application of Christian worship so that it magnifies God's glory, it proclaims, it tells the gospel story, and it edifies Christ's body. So with this goal before us, our strategy is to highlight several contributions made during the Protestant Reformation concerning worship and how we can continue to benefit from them and our need to continue to reform even in light of them. So some of these four lessons that we'll consider here this morning, four lessons that we might draw from Protestant worship. The first is this. The Protestant Reformation reminds us of the significance of spiritual reform among God's people. Let's begin there and not jump the gun too quickly. What do I mean by this? Well, if we trace the Scripture's storyline, we'll see a consistent pattern of formation to deformation to then reformation. Let me explain that a bit. First, God forms His formative, life-giving speech forms man from the dust of the ground, breathing into him the breath of life. But what happens so quickly? Man deforms and defiles himself through sin and idolatry, believing God is withholding good from him, even lying to keep what he needs. Adam and Eve experience the horrifying feeling then of shame and they hide themselves so God will not see how they have deformed themselves from His good design. But in God's mercy, in Genesis 3.15, a promise of reformation, of reformation is issued. The seed of Eve would crush the head of that lying serpent even as He would bruise Messiah's heel. Formation, deformation, reformation. This pattern repeats time and again as God issues His law only to then endure high-handed, law-breaking sins by His covenant people and then patiently, graciously, mercifully forgiving those sinful people, reforming them according to the law of the Lord. What joy Moses must have felt as he descended Mount Sinai, knowing that the God who had met him in the burning bush had now cut a covenant with him, and now coming to share this glory with the people, where are they? 
they have already deeply entered a state of deformation, of idol worship, causing Moses to erupt in anger. But what mercy God exhibits to not destroy them once and for all, but to extend continued grace in the giving of the rest of His law, in the gift of the tabernacle, providing fellowship with Him. We see in the prophet's ministry, they cry out time and again against the sinful paths of deformation that Israel was pursuing. The entire prophetic ministry in the Old Testament is probably nowhere better summarized than in Jeremiah 35.15 that reads, Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your fathers. While the term reform is not a common scriptural word used exactly in scripture, the concept is prevalent, very often arriving in the terms of remember and return. Remember return to covenant faithfulness. So what we'll see under a later point of it is how the Word of God and nothing else reforms the people of God. It is the Word of God that reforms the people of God, causing them to remember and return. Indeed, it took the Word of God incarnate Jesus, God's own Son, under the inauguration of a new and better covenant to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh for God's people, causing them to obey out of joyful obedience through the power of the Spirit. Spiritual reformation is the act of repenting of sin and returning to live all of life by faith in God's revealed Word. This is what the... the, motivating underlying reality and purpose was. In 16th century Europe, by and large, the Protestant reformers had their sights aimed at bringing spiritual reformation to that which had come under significant spiritual deformation in the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, the reformers would use the phrase post-tenebrous lux, after darkness, light since they understood themselves to be leaving this blindness of deformation into the light of spiritual reformation, softness, obedience to the voice of God in the Scriptures. But tweaking and altering and reforming the mechanics of church worship wasn't the ultimate goal. Addressing the widespread spiritual coldness within the souls of men and women was the chief problem. But it certainly could not be remedied without reforming how God was to be worshipped and known in the liturgy. A second lesson that we might note is very closely related to this first point, and, and that is this. The Protestant Reformation teaches us that spiritual reform is not spiritual innovation. Spiritual reform is not the same as spiritual innovation. Now, I am sure Pastor Miller could tell you story after story after story of people, of books, of conferences, of ministries, of parachurch organizations, of emails, 
he's received through the years and on and on that have sought to convince him that if he does not reimagine church, if he does not re-envision how the church is going to make it in the 20th, 21st century, well, you might as well just pack your bags, close your doors, and just go live on the streets of ecclesiastical irrelevancy or something. You're done. How many times has that message been promoted? And quite honestly, Americans fall for it a lot. It fits so well with our market-driven consumerism and our orientation to give parishioners exactly the kind of experience at church that they want. Just fits just right. The Reformers obviously had no concept of marketing the church per se as we know it today, but there was a strong awareness that the church belongs to Christ. And as such, it was not to be tampered with If the gates of hell will not prevail against this church, we ought not mess around with this divinely protected invincibility of the church against the forces of darkness. As was mentioned earlier, many have thought that Martin Luther knew, as he posted these 95 theses, that he was setting the world ablaze. Not so. He was simply wanting to engage in discussion and debate over serious doctrinal issues blowing the, part, the church apart and, and reimagining and re-innovating what it was going to look like was nowhere close to what was on his mind. Luther himself would write this. He would say, We openly declare that it is not and never has been our intention to abolish utterly the whole formal worship of God, but to cleanse that which is in use, which has been spoiled by the most wicked additions. The Reformers made a big deal of returning back to the original sources, ad fontis, back to scholarship, back to learning the original languages so that pastors could know God's Word, not in an allegorically driven manner, which had dominated most of the church's hermeneutical interpretation of the Bible up to this point, but to know in a historical and a grammatical way what the texts of the Scriptures mean. This motivation was also applied to worship. Efforts were made to examine the Mass with how the New Testament described the assembled church in the book of Acts and in the epistles. So significant changes began to be proposed and then implemented to return the Bible to its rightful place of authority. While it may be easy for us today to point fingers at the Reformers saying, oh, you, you only went 50 yards, you should have gone 90 yards. Why didn't, why'd you stop? How easy is that for us to play Monday morning quarterback and point fingers? And, and yet we have to content ourselves to just be at peace that God makes incremental changes in His timing according to His purposes and give thanks for what was being accomplished in a unique way. But as it was with the Reformers, it should be with us today. Church tradition, church history ought to matter to us. It really should. We should celebrate the living faith of the dead, never allowing it to become the dead faith of the living. But nevertheless, reciting readings such as the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed or other passages of Scripture can allow a church to show her age, the depth of her roots, stabilizing its hope in an unchanging God. Choosing not to do something 
for nothing more than the reason that it just feels too Catholic-y to us isn't a great reason. Choosing not to do something done in the Roman Catholic tradition because it does not conform with the Scriptures is the right reason. We ought not chase church innovation in hopes that if we just get that fertilizer mix perfect, if we just get it all set, we're going to see spiritual fruit like no one's ever seen. Right? How many have fallen into that mode of thinking that like Simon the Magician, if I can just harness the power here, if I can just pull the right strings, I will see the results that will display and confirm that I'm doing the right thing. Rather, we ought to honor the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, who is Himself the Lord of the church's family history, the Lord of the church's heritage. And we reveal our ancient roots and stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before. An application of this principle in our midst is singing hymns that have endured throughout church history, honoring those saints that have gone before. These are, in essence, musical prayers, you might say. It was under that belief that singing is prayer that was the only reason why John Calvin allowed for singing to be done in worship. He was very concerned that the ideas and the words of men would displace the authority of the Scriptures. We recite creeds from time to time that arrange Christian doctrine for us in memorable and valuable ways that have served to, to catechize and to teach and to become an a, a operating system in the background of what orthodoxy is in helpful ways. Even just in a remaining regularly in a state of examination as a church. Healthy critique. This happens in meetings that you're largely unaware of, elders' meetings or service reviews that we have, but also is commended and encouraged by every member of this church that if there is ever a question as to where in the Bible does it say we ought to do such and such, I want to be the first person to line up there to have that discussion and to change and to reform to bring everything in accord with what God has revealed. Maintaining a difference uh, between God's laws and a church's manner of life, though, can, can be somewhat of the challenge there. But nevertheless, all things must sub- be submitted to God's Word. The third idea, the third lesson drawn that we might draw from Protestant worship is this. The, Preform- the, Re- the Protestant Reformation teaches us the significance of word-centered worship. Although it received much less attention than Luther's 95 theses, the city of Bern, Germany, issued their own 10 theses in 1528, pointing to their loyalty to the Protestant cause. Their first thesis is one of the greatest sentences from the 16th century, so writes Dr. Michael Allen, and it is this, the holy Christian church whose head is Christ, not Christ and the Pope, Christ, is born of the Word of God. So the church is birthed because of the Word. It abides in the same, so not just the birth event, but it lives in that Word, and it does not listen to the voice of a stranger. What a beautiful, simple sentence. 
Another way of stating what this sentence drives at is that the church is fundamentally a creature of the Word, as was a phrase used by some reformers. As a creature brought into existence because of the life-giving power of the Word, it must remain connected to the Word or else it cuts itself off from its very life source. The striking story of the Valley of the Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37 demonstrates that death-to-life power of the preached Word. As the Lord commands the prophet to prophesy over this valley of dry bones, and he watches as they begin to assemble themselves, and the power of the Word begins to then give muscularity to these, bustle, to these, these bones, forming them into people, giving new life. So even when Israel was spiritually dead, the Word raised God's people back to life. At the time of the Reformation, a similar spiritual resurrection was in order. Roman Catholic preaching was rare, if it even took place in worship. And when it did, it was real bad. Luther, reflecting on this, he said, Lo, whither hath the glory of the church departed? The whole earth is filled with priests, bishops, cardinals, and clerics, and yet not one of them preaches. If preaching even took place, it was of very poor quality, with little to no individual exegesis or preparation. More often, not, more often than not, it was a snippet, five, ten minutes, of a sermon recorded by a church father that they would just bring into the present and reheat, and there you go. Oftentimes, these were transcribed sermons from, from church fathers read in Latin. So Calvin also noted how, how, how poor Roman Catholic preaching was in his day as he described the sermons as sweet stories and amusing speculations in which only a few expressions were thrown in from the Word of God that by their majesty they might procure credit for these frivolities. We oftentimes share the, the quote in our church's orientation seminar. Some of you may have gone through that more recently than others, but we will oftentimes say regarding the section on preaching that someone is going to suffer for the sermon, either the preacher or the congregation. And we always say it is our joy to gladly suffer and do hard work so that God's people may grow. And isn't it true that at this time there was an impoverishment of both knowledge and, and a, a vibrant love for God because the knowledge of Him had largely been lost, at least obscured. Some criticized John Calvin's liturgy in Geneva as simply being four white walls and a sermon. A uh, pejorative phrase he didn't necessarily it didn't bother him too much. And as he sought to reduce the pageantry of Roman Catholic worship in order to underscore the importance of the preached word, the word became all significant. Pastors and preachers of today wear many hats, and they should in many ways. They're called to shepherd the flock, defend it against heresy, watch out for wolves, to lead the assembly to green pasture in dependence on Christ's ultimate leadership of the flock. They must counsel and exhort and instruct and teach and pray and love. 
And yet, even if all of these necessary and right responsibilities are fulfilled wonderfully, if the Word of God in the preaching of the Bible is weak, all of God's people will suffer. The whole church suffers greatly. Do we, as an assembly, cherish the preaching moment in the life of the church? Do we understand its unique power to convert the lost, to call the sinner to repentance, to expose the secrets of the heart, to guide the Spirit's convicting work, and to empower believers in selfless service? And most of all, to unveil the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let us never stray from a love for expositional preaching that anchors God's people in divine speech. Our last lesson drawn from Protestant worship this morning, and there are many. Let me just transparently say this was terribly hard. I had like a (laughs) hundred. And... This is already getting long. No. But the Protestant Reformation teaches us the significance of active, intelligible participation in corporate worship. Intelligible may not be the best word there, but hopefully as I explain it here, you'll understand the, the sense of what I'm driving after. The Reformation teaches a very important lesson to us of the significance of active participation in worship. The ministry of Ezra in the Old Testament is a profound reminder of the covenantal responsibilities of ministers of God's Word as well as the covenantal responsibilities of the people, God's people, in worship. Ezra set out, as you may remember, on a mission to return back to Jerusalem, a mission sponsored by the king of Persia, Artaxerxes himself, to restore temple worship. Finally, as one writes, the covenant community is returning to covenant worship before their covenant Lord in the covenant city. This is glorious. This is right where they want to be. And after the people repent of their sin of intermarrying pagan women, Ezra tears his clothes, he pulls out his hair, and he names himself among his brothers and sisters sinful Israelites. He offers then this prayer of confession. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. And the people then observe their great leader with such contriteness of heart and repentance before the Lord that they follow suit and their hearts are moved to repentance before the Lord. So arriving at Nehemiah chapter 8 in the story, now having renewed humble hearts before the Lord, Ezra gathers the people to renew the covenant in Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is bring out the book of the law of Moses and to read it from dawn till noon. And while the reading of the word alone without human commentary has a unique place and power in corporate worship, In this account, Ezra stands on a wooden platform to read and explain. To read and explain, along with the help of his Levitical priests, the law for the people. 
The text says that they gave the sense so the people could understand. They gave the sense. They read and explained the law of the Lord so that there was comprehension. There was understanding. There was a graspability, if that's a word, and able to be known nature about what they were hearing. The people, what was their response? They wept. They wept and they worshiped on their faces. And then they feasted together. They wept and worshiped because as Nehemiah 8.12 says, they understood the words that were explained to them. God has given His Word so His people might understand it and then obey it. This is part of the fundamental belief of what the Bible is. The perspicuity of Scripture, it is able to be known. We are able to grasp it. And when we understand it, we ought to weep and worship at the glory of it all. And what should be made of worship that is undecipherable, or indecipherable and unintelligible. What should we make of that? Well, this was, in all actuality, the state of medieval Roman worship at the dawn of the Reformation. Several years ago, just by way of illustration, uh, Dan and I were able to go visit the Sinkavichus family. I think this is about five or six years ago now. We had the opportunity to go with Audris to Riga, Latvia, and to minister on a Sunday in a couple different churches. Dan was in one church, I was in another, preaching through a translator. And I recall being genuinely moved by the worship. Uh, And yet, this may surprise some of you, I don't know Russian. This was a challenge. And with a a well-meaning elderly lady noticed that I was not participating as she thought that I should. So she sort of, you know, nudged me with a hymnal and kind of said, come on, man, get going. You need to start singing, to which I I opened and thought, this isn't helping me. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't comprehend what is going on. I I generally know, you know, these these are heartfelt prayers being offered. But as to the particulars, any real understanding was lost to me. I needed help. I needed someone to make sense of this if I was to truly grasp what was being conveyed. Well, imagine medieval Europe for a moment. Townspeople, perhaps in France, Germany, Switzerland, wherever, gathering on Sunday mornings to hear a chorus of trained church musicians sing for you on your behalf, to hear a priest intercede for you, to listen to a mass conducted in Latin, though you have no idea what is being said, and to believe that all that really matters in this moment is that I ingest the body and blood of Christ. Because if that can bless me enough to keep me on the straight and narrow another week so I can do it again, I guess that's what's really important. That was about as far as my simple mind is taking me. Very, very little is understood, much less participated in actively. The Protestant Reformation is the result of God's people, similar to the covenant renewal in Ezra's day, of understanding the Word of God in their own tongue and responding in faith and repentance. What were some of those changes? Well, because Martin Luther was convinced, like John Huss, 
who was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church some 7,500 years prior. He was convinced with Huss of the priesthood of every believer. He made sure that, that music, this is Luther, was no longer the exclusive domain of professional church musicians. As Brian Chappell writes in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, the choir could assist the congregation, but the congregation was to sing. Music was to be more than a decorative accompaniment to the Latin phrases of the Mass. Music was an expression of the praise of the people. And for their praise to be sincere, it had to be understood. This meant that the hymns were in the language of the people, not in ecclesiastical Latin. This was worship in the vernacular. For Luther, hymns were now to be sung in German throughout the service because Luther, for Luther, the church as a whole was God's mouthpiece, as he would say. And everyone inside participated in the proclamation of the gospel. Congregants gathered no longer in fear that if they were to skip, they'd run low on grace and they would risk the fires of hell or purgatory that week. They were gathered by faith in Christ's saving work once and for all personally to rehearse this gospel in the very structure and in the worship and the content of the liturgy. John Calvin also desired God's people to hear and to read God's word themselves and then to respond in prayer and song. As I mentioned, so convinced was Calvin of word-saturated worship And so fed up was he of man's slipperiness in terms of adding their ideas to the worship of God that he ensured that the people only sing the Psalms, eliminating any hymns of human composure, which for him was an entry, a little weak spot in the the fence where man's ideas could creep in. I don't agree with that, by the way. Just where he was. Calvin wanted his people to read along with the liturgy of the service, He wanted them to, as he says, grow familiar with the process of the service and to participate at various portions of the liturgy. This was because the very structure of the liturgy was intended to re-present, to put forward afresh, not to re-sacrifice the Son of God, but to remind and to rehearse the glories of Christ's redemption for His people. As the liturgy would progress from adoration to confession of sin to assurance of one's pardon in Christ to the receiving then of the preached word to responding in song, much, much more could be said here, but suffice it to say the reformers did much to purge and purify a historic liturgy of worship that emphasizes the gospel in content and structure. Now, some concluding ideas and application. You may hear some people say, now, wasn't the Protestant Reformation, though, just this royal overcorrection by a bunch of white European men who got really sick and tired of the Pope telling them what to do, so then they found enough followers so they could finally do what they wanted? I mean, isn't that really what it's all about? Besides, aren't, aren't Roman Catholics today, even in our society, our friends, and in so many modern-day efforts Uh, to uh, obliterate any vestige of Judeo-Christian norms? Aren't these our comrades, you know, in in, in all things societal life together? 
Well, yes, in some respects. In a sense, the Reformers were tired of the Pope's ever-expanding control over their lives and his status of speaking infallibly on behalf of God. And there was... uh, To read the Reformers today, we would say, this language is shocking, out of bounds, inappropriate for any Christian to ever say. (laughs) They reserved incredibly incisive, sharp language for what they saw to be an utter um, overstepping of Christ's lordship over his church. And yes, we do stand in agreement on a great many things when it comes to moral and ethical and cultural issues. But I think the words of J.I. Packer are true when he wrote them and they ring true today. The reason why the Reformation happened and Protestant churches came into being was that Luther and his fellow reformers believed that papal Rome had apostatized from the gospel so completely in this respect that no faithful Christian could with a good conscience continue within her ranks. Now, while significant changes have taken place, even within the last 60, 70 years following Vatican II, Uh, making the Mass more understandable and abandoning Latin in certain circumstances. Sadly, as it relates to the problematic doctrines of what was, was at war at the time, these views still prevail today. Suffice it to say, as we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, our appreciation for, our understanding of Protestant Reformed history must continue because still today, like then, nothing less than the purity of the gospel is at stake. So if you're here today and you would not identify as a Christian, know that in, our, in your natural condition, you are hardwired to want to work, to want to follow Mark Galley's advice. It just feels right to want to work, to to, to do things that get me somewhere, that just put some more tokens in the machine with God. In our sinful heart of hearts, we know, though, we have broken God's commands, and something must be done about it. Will you take care of this matter on your own and repair this breach between you and God? But if left to yourself... What sin-free act could you possibly give to God? You have nothing to bring to the table. We are not as sinful as we possibly could be, but we are thoroughly sinful to our core. The Reformers knew this, and it led them to fall on the mercy of God alone. This is why they grounded all their hopes in Christ alone, not the work of of priests or popes on their behalf, in grace alone, not in completing the sacraments as if there are merit badges that can earn credit with God, through faith alone, not faith and good works, in the Scriptures alone, soaring above all claims of what the Pope might say and what church tradition may declare. That is an ever-moving target. And for the glory of God alone, not for the glory of beautiful cathedrals, not for the purpose of building St. Peter's Basilica, 
which is what the sale of indulgences was doing as merit with God was being hawked on the streets, confusing God's people, not creating any sort of a gracious response to God, but simply getting that, that token that I just bought and being on my merry way. Well, if God is at work in your heart in any way this morning, perhaps the words of Martin Luther may prove helpful for you. He wrote this. He said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, And where he is, there I shall be also. The Protestant Reformation continues to matter because the purity of the gospel matters. And because the manner in which God is worshipped matters immensely. Returning to the story of Mark Galley for a moment, was he right to grow disgusted with the triteness, general lack of depth in Protestant worship? Was he right to long for more depth than what is often prevalent in churches today? Maybe so. Perhaps. If Calvin's service was given the phrase, four white walls in a sermon, today's evangelical service is often reduced to merely four worship songs in a sermon. Perhaps we have experienced some measure of spiritual deformation with respect to worship in our day. That warrants reform yet again. May the Lord rekindle within Protestant churches a knowledge of and appreciation for active participation in every element of biblically saturated liturgy, worship, that represents, remembers, and returns to Christ's finished work of redemption accomplished and applied for the people of God through the power of the Spirit and to the glory of God. As one author writes, he said, Worship in the age of the Holy Spirit is not flashy or visibly powerful, but instead is so simple that it appears to be inconsequential. Oftentimes we do hunger for those experiences in all directions. But may the Lord help us avoid the itch of chasing aesthetic or even mystical experiences in worship to the degree that we barter the gospel in order to have it. May we content ourselves with the ordinary means of grace as we pray, as we sing, as we give, as we hear, and as we respond to God's voice in the Scriptures as an assembly. Let's pray. Father, would you continue this work of reformation in our midst? Glorify yourself even as we long for a return to the law of the Lord, whether it's in our hearts personally or we have turned from the Lord in some respects, perhaps as a church in ways. Please reveal that if they are there. May we weep and rejoice as we understand the glory of your revealed word, always and forever, standing beneath its ultimate life-giving authority. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.